It's the Foghorn, and you know what that means. It is time for the Cavish Ships Podcast, where we try and break through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, Russia's war on Ukraine drags on, and its pernicious effects on the world economy, particularly the devastating loss of grain from Ukraine, are growing ever worse. What are the chances ships loaded with Ukrainian grain will get moving again? And what are the risks of an active NATO and American intervention to make that happen? We've got two great guests to help us dive deep into these issues. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. Just over two years since the devastating fire that ultimately destroyed the USS Bonham Richard, Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro on July 15th issued a letter of censure to retired Vice Admiral Rich Brown for his role in the disaster. Brown was the highest-ranking officer to receive a wide range of punishments as the Navy's Consolidated Disposition Authority issued decisions on 27 individuals with varying degrees of responsibility in the fire. Included among those receiving punishments were the ship's commanding and executive officers and command master chief, as well as two rear admirals. The Navy, following the release last October of two major investigative reports, is expected to take no more official action related to the disaster. The House of Representatives on July 14th approved by a more than three to one margin its version of the fiscal year 2023 defense authorization bill, approving an increase of $37 billion over the Pentagon's request for a total of $839 billion. The House added five ships to the Navy request for eight ships for a total of 13, one more destroyer, one more frigate, one more fleet oiler, and two ambulance ships. The measure authorizes 64 F-35 Joint Strike Fighters for the Navy, Marines, and Air Force, and eight more F-A-18 Super Hornet Strike Fighters for the Navy. Other provisions include the establishment of a new national commission to review the future of the Navy, as well as a requirement that codifies the Navy's role in peacetime deterrence. The additional ships, aircraft, and funding are not final. The Senate is not expected to pass its defense authorization bill until August, and neither the House or Senate have approved their defense spending bills for 2023. An F-A-18 Super Hornet strike fighter, was blown overboard from the aircraft carrier Harry S. Truman July 8th in the Mediterranean Sea. U.S. Naval Forces Europe said the accident happened due to, quote, unexpected heavy weather that sprung up as Truman was carrying out an underway replenishment with a supply ship alongside. One sailor received minor injuries, the Navy said, but no further details have been made available. The Truman has been deployed to the Mediterranean since December. In the Pacific, Rim of the Pacific, or RIMPAC, got underway in earnest July 12th as about three dozen warships left Pearl Harbor to take part in the world's largest naval exercise held every two years in waters near Hawaii and off Southern California. The 2022 RIMPAC features something quite new, the active participation of four unmanned surface vessels operating around Hawaii, along with multiple unmanned aircraft. The exercise is scheduled to continue into early August. The U.S. destroyer Benfold carried out a FANOP, or Freedom of Navigation, exercise July 13th when it passed near the Parcel Islands in the South China Sea. 
Although the islands are in international waters, China claims they are Chinese territory, and as usual, the Chinese protested vigorously and also claimed they chased away the U.S. ship, which was shown in Chinese images taken from a nearby Chinese frigate. And in Australia, media reported July 12th that the Australian frigate Parramatta on a regional deployment in the Western Pacific has been closely tracked for weeks and sometimes challenged by Chinese ships, aircraft, and submarines, particularly in the East China Sea. Australia's Defense Department has declined to comment on the reports. And that's just a quick look at some of this week's naval news. We're lucky to have with us today two experts who can really give us some good insight into a lot of the issues at play as we look at Ukraine and grain and the potential of breaking the blockade. First up is Sal Mercagliano. Uh, he's host of the video blog, What's Going On With Shipping. He's an associate professor of history at Campbell University, North Carolina, an adjunct professor at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy and a licensed merchant marine deck officer. And John Conrad, licensed merchant marine ship captain, author of Fire on the Horizon about the Deepwater Horizon disaster and founder of the G-Captain website. Uh, Sal and John, welcome, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Thank you. so first up, Sal, um, there's a lot of ships, uh, car, merchant ships, bulkers sitting in the, in the, in the, in the Black Sea right now. A lot of them, uh, dozens and dozens are off the Danube estuary, Constanta, Romania, um, nominally waiting for cargo. Um, there's famine that's already showing up as a direct result of this, of the blockade of her, of Ukrainian grain. Um, what do you see the situation right now? What's a sit rep? Sure. So, uh, you know, big report came out just the other day that another access to the Danube river has been opened. So one of the things to remember is we're talking about 6 million tons of grain come out of Ukraine monthly. And that's been cut down to about one to one and a half million tons coming out. The grain right now is being shipped out of southern Ukrainian ports, Remy and Ismail on the Danube River. This is one of the issues why the Ukrainians have been so insistent about neutralizing Snake Island, because just 15 miles southwest of Snake Island is the access into the Danube River. There's a canal through Romania that gets you onto the Danube. And then there's the mouth of the Danube, which is just reopened now that the Ukrainians have basically booted the Russians off that island. But the big thing is the fact that the Gulf of Odessa ports from Odessa all the way over the Kyrgyzstan have been either occupied or blockaded either by Ukrainians mining their ports or the Russians using vessels and mines themselves to prevent the shipment of that grain. And we have to remember that this grain shipments that come out of here are absolutely essential. You're talking about 36% of the world's sunflower uh, seeds come out of here, 9% of the wheat, 11% of the barley, 10% of the uh, coca seeds, and about 13% of corn come out of here. And these are food sources that go to countries in Europe, Asia, Middle East, and South uh, and Africa in particularly. And with that disruption, what we're seeing here is a disruption in the world food supply. And unfortunately, there's not really another alternative source you can go to. The other big source is Russia. But as you mentioned, the fact that Russia is using their vessels to haul out some Ukrainian grain is raising questions about whether you can get Russian ships in your ports because you don't know where that grain's coming from. And we're looking at a global food situation we really haven't seen in modern days. John, do you, do you agree with that? Is there, is there more? 
I absolutely agree with that. But we have to look at this also. This is everything coming out of the Ukraine. We're also in a major fertilizer shortage. So you saw when the economist, uh, they, they actually, is the first time ever, I think they put 48 skulls that look like wheats of grain on the cover. And that was the peak of grain prices. And then they've gone down. And people are kind of now going, oh, the crisis is over, but it's really not. Uh, the prices are going down because Russia is stealing Ukraine grain and, and working with Turkey and getting out of the Bosphorus and no one's inspecting these ships. You know, the NATO is allowing these uh, ships to come out with stolen grain. Um, and then you have China going in and out of lockdown. Every time they go out of lockdown, the kind of caloric intake of China goes down. And uh, so, so there's extra grain in there. But even if we solve this now and we don't have an immediate famine, uh, which is still possible, we still have to get the fertilizer into the Ukraine for the next crops and, and around the world. And the biggest spike increases LNG uh, prices are going up and LNG is a critical input for that fertilizer. So it's really the only thing I'd add is it's a two way trade. So the all this stuff is getting blocked up, but but the, the producers aren't producing grain anymore. I mean, the, the, the farmers are the farmers aren't farming. Uh, most of them, they can't sell the crop that they're that they've got right now to harvest. Uh, they don't have good places to store it. A lot of them haven't been paid for the for the first crop that they shipped earlier in the year that didn't get exported. Um, the whole supply chain is falling apart. And yeah, I mean, right now, it looks like even if I mean, if everything stopped, if the Russians just went home and that was it, it would still take several years probably to restore the chain of things. But that's not going to stop the immediate issue. Um John, you, you know, you're, you're watching this, you're, you're looking at calls for um, American and NATO naval intervention into the Black Sea to go into this inland waterway, which only has one way in and one way out, con controlled by Turkey, um, to try and break this. And of course, what are, if that were to happen, what are some of the risks that you see with that sort of naval intervention by NATO into the Black Sea? Well, it's, a, it's enormous risk to send, uh, you know, ships in. You have the biggest risk is the, the Russian submarines in the Black Sea. You also have, you know, this kind of unusual situation where that Snake Island was really controlling the, this critical area into the Danube and Romania. These mines were floating in, but the Eastern Black Sea, um, I can't pronounce the name very well, Novoriske, uh, Sal can probably get this better, but the Russians were doing a very good job at securing ships in the in their half of the Black Sea. I mean, most of the West is uh, Romania, Bulgaria, uh, Turkey in the south, uh, the south and the western part of the Black Sea are NATO waters. And we weren't clearing mines while Russia was doing a very good job securing ships, uh, making ships safe in the eastern and uh, northeastern area of the Black Sea. So you have this dichotomy. Russia has submarines kind of protecting merchant ships that are bringing the oil and the grain, stolen grain out. And then you have this weird thing with Turkey, where Turkey says, you know, got this praise from the world saying uh, with the Montreux Convention, Montreux Convention, which hasn't been fully activated, but which they've kind of been threatening, prevents uh, belligerent states from sending uh, vessels in. So that's Russia is the only one that's been 
kind of stamped belligerent. Um, but then Turkey did this thing where they requested that no one else send Navy uh, vessels in. And Turkey hasn't been, you know, restricting the stolen grain. So Turkey is the real wild card in this situation because um, there's nothing preventing NATO and the Navy from sending ships in except this request from Turkey. And if we do, so first we have this State Department, we got to get the State Department and we got to get Turkey on board allowing these minesweepers and the, and the destroyers that might escort ships in. And then once we do, there's a real physical threat of uh, escalating the violence if these destroyers in. Now, Sal and I were among the first that were calling for destroyer escorts in the Black Sea, and we got a lot of, you know, we got a lot of angry comments from a lot of people at all levels of the, the Navy, uh, particularly me and even the Merchant Marine. And my point there was that we need to start planning. You know, as a ship captain, uh, whenever there was a danger, a storm in the North Atlantic or, or, or something that was unusual, I went doubling down on the voyage planning. And my second mate would always say, John, you end up always doing something different anyway, because that voyage planning process, if it's done well, it allows you to deviate from the plan. The problem right now, Chris, is we are not entering these merchant ships into our planning process. There's some classified plans how to get this bulk out. But if you don't inform the insurance company, so Russia is telling the insurance companies exactly what they're doing, and they're underwriting these ships into the Russian areas of the Black Sea, and NATO is not doing anything. They're not communicating well. Our advisories to ships go through the Maritime Administration, MARAD. They haven't updated that advisory since March. And NATO MARCOM is doing a little better, but it's very limited information that's going out. So if you don't have that transparency, uh, the, the insurance companies can't plan. And on the bigger thing, we've ignored the merchant marine. I mean, I'm just getting into this. I'm shocked by the number of uh, podcasts, but also uh, uh, think tanks and security organizations. And all these colleges have entire buildings filled with naval planners. And in these couple months, I've asked, can you find me one merchant marine ship captain that works at any of these think tanks or any of these academics? And they can't. So we've completely turned our back on the Merchant Marine. And now that we need this planning, there's no one available. Uh, and Sal and my uh, phones are getting called by specifics. We have Admiral General Lyons in the White House. We have Admiral Phillips put into DOT Marad, but they had their problems with the port of Los Angeles. And there's so many other maritime problems happening now that it's, we don't have the resources to also do the planning for Black Sea. Let's assume that the planning could occur. Let's assume that, um, that the Navy and NATO got their act together, were able to find an elegant way to get into the Black Sea and uh, without it escalating. Does the capacity exist to move that grain? I mean, is, is, it a, is it strictly a force protection issue or is there also a capacity issue in terms at this point, getting the grain out of Ukraine uh, and getting it to the places that it needs? Well, I mean, you have a couple of issues. Obviously, you got to get the major port open. You got to get Odessa open because Odessa has the facilities to load the large bulkers. What you're seeing right now is small bulkers, very small, the medium-sized ships that are going up the 
Danube canals and the Danube River itself and bringing it out and then consolidating it. So you have to be able to get that sort of protection in. And the problem you have, it's, it's a multidimensional issue you face. You've got mine issues, you've got floating mines, you've got bottom influence mines. And everyone who's ever dealt with mine warfare will tell you that you can sweep and sweep. You're never going to be sure you get all the mines out. And that's going to cause you problems. You got an air defense issue because you've got to worry about strikes because the Russians have hit commercial shipping. We've seen it. They, they can give their uh, you know assurances all they want, but they've killed merchant mariners so far in this war, neutral merchant mariners in this war. You've got to get shipping companies who are going to buy off on this. Who's going to underwrite the insurance on this? Because a typical insurance for a vessel doesn't cover war risk. So you're talking about war risk insurance. you got to get mariners to crew them. You, you, I mean, there's a lot that has to be done to do it. You know, A lot of people make the analogy, and I do it myself, to the tanker war of the 1980s. But remember, we got in on the back end of that. It was already 87, 88. This has been going on since 80 and 81. And so there is a lot that has to be done with that. And just to go back with something John said, Turkey is the big variable here. The problem with Turkey is this, is that Turkey imports 22% of its food from Russia. And unless you can sit there and guarantee them alternative food sources, because you're going to anger Russia at this, Turkey is very leery not to do this. I mean, it's a tale of two Black Seas right now. The Northern Black Sea is a war zone. The Southern Black Sea it's commercial going on as normal in many ways. Uh, I mean, the Russians just announced they're initiating a cruise line on the on the Black Sea. I don't know who would take a cruise on the Black Sea right now, but you know that's what the Russians are doing. But the Russians also have a very strict objective. If you look at what they've done from uh, Crimea up to Rostov in ports like Mariupol and Berdansk, they have been concerned about their maritime supply line of communications. The reason they took Crimea in 2014 was they were concerned the Ukrainians were going to shut the Kerch Strait to them. And the reason they grabbed Mariupol, it was in the news all the time, was because they were concerned they was going to cut off their supply off the Don River. And the Don River is the Mississippi of Russia. It links to the Volga. It links to the Baltic. It links to the White Sea, which gets you in the Arctic. And, and so the Russians are very cognizant of how important this maritime supply line is. But there's a lot of the things, Chris, to overcome to get those ships moving up to Odessa, not the least of which, by the way, is the Russians have hit Odessa multiple times, including the grain facilities there. So, John, um, I want you to pick up on that. But I, I, I guess I sort of as a 20 year naval officer, graduate of the Naval Academy, I, I feel the need that I have to say, like your Mark One Mod Zero, you know, 0506 junior flag is not used to dealing with this, right? I mean, not even sort of intellectually, right? I mean, and this is why it's so exciting to have you guys on the podcast, but I just don't know that we think about it, let alone do we plan to it to your earlier point, John, to ha have we, you know, are we comfortable um, uh, operating, you, you know, you, John, I follow you on Twitter. You, you sort of are constantly lamenting about, hey, you know, a maritime strategy isn't complete until it kind of includes all of these pieces. How do we get here from there? I mean, to say, you know, obviously the Black Sea challenge is the is the wolf closest to the sled to say nothing of what people are sort of looking ahead and maybe thinking about in the Indo-PACOM AOR. I mean, can we get here from there? Well, I, I think that's the big you know, question is the, the, the Navy's got to wake up. And, and I attended the Naval Academy as well. And unfortunately, my dad, a Vietnam veteran, got, uh, uh, I was class 99. He got Agent Orange, was buried in Arlington. And uh, I had to get home closer to, so I went to New York Maritime Academy yeah. to get closer to home with my family. 
Uh, but this this was a major wake-up call for me, these these old working ships. I mean, some of these ships are, we have the Shell Prelude, which is a lot more complex than our, our largest aircraft carrier, and no one in the Navy really knows this. And even the, the very simple ships like the Balker, we had a story yesterday about uh, the ex, the chief mate of the hospital ship Mercy being pulled off, and I did the title XO, um, but the XO on the Mercy is just the doctors in charge of the hospital. The captain and the what you think of as the XO is the chief mate. And we got all this feedback, like, why do you call it XO? There's a mass amount of confusion. And I don't think the average surface warfare officer understands merchant shipping. But there are over 50,000 ships in the world. And now we're at a point where China just came out uh, uh, you know, the, the think tanks just came out and said China is militarizing its merchant marine. As a merchant ship captain, I don't know what to do in a uh, mine environment. I don't even really know how to call up other ships. And we have the SSO, Strategic Sea Lift Officer Program. So some of these KP and Naval Reservists who go in and they're supposed to represent you know, get on these ships and, and kind of tell them, but the training isn't really there. The merchant marines down. We have 4,500 Chinese merchant ships. We're down to, uh, Sal's going to correct me on this number. I think it's 72 U.S. merchant ships that are in international trade. We don't have this expertise. And in the 70, uh, in the 80s and the 90s, the merchant marine industry was all outsourced overseas and the jobs weren't there. So we have this huge generational gap. We don't have the expertise in this country, but getting back to those think tanks, getting back to the you know general lines, getting back to maritime administration, we have to fund these. The Navy kind of turned its back on these because a lot of them were in big trouble um, for a number of years and we can go into the reasons, but the strategic planning went off and we said, hey, we're going to let our, our friends in Denmark and Merck handle this. And then our friends in France with uh, CGM CMA. Yeah. But we lost that expertise. And as the Navy got away also from working ships, Bonham Richard, where's the fireboats? Uh, where are the salvage ships? Where are the tugboats? So it's first the Navy pushed that over to MSC. And now MSC is, is really, Military Sea Lift Command is failing. Those ships are over age and we're putting all our money into the, to the Zumwalts and the LCSs and the carrier programs. So there's this real disconnect in the working ships. And I don't think, uh, the other thing about this Black Sea is our focus has been on Kiev, the media's focus on these missiles, on these anti-tank missiles, surface to air missiles. Russia's focus, as Sal pointed out, at the whole time has been on the port strategy. They're interested in that seaway. So we have Army guys in charge of uh, Eurocom, uh, NATO Supreme Commander, Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the SECDEF are all generals in the Army. But this is very, very much a maritime war. And the media doesn't understand that. And when we go into bigger issues like building enough ships to combat China. Well, you know, the American public, the Navy lost its opportunity, maybe not to enter the Black Sea, but to at least talk about it and educate. I mean, Gilday should be on explaining to the public the importance of these bulkers and to get destroyer escorts. 
that could really benefit the Navy budget um, as well. And I, I think absolutely it's a missing component. So let's uh, let, let, in our in our time remaining, let's uh, let, let's do some hypotheticals, which official people hate. They just loathe it. What would happen if I don't deal in hypotheticals? Well, you should. I hope you are. I hope you're thinking about it. Um, so let's just say that this gets worse and worse and worse. The calls go on and on and on. Uh, at some point, um, three, five months from now, there's an effort to force the Dardanelles, to, to use the old classic phrase from World War I. Um, and we, NATO, the U.S., cobbles together a force. Um, you, might, you might use a cruiser. They're all expendable right now. They're all going all going to be decommissioned, so no particular loss in the big in, in the big picture. If, if, if a cruiser hits a minor three, and by the way, they can survive them. It's the the uh, Princeton, of course, and in, um, in Desert Storm. Um, so we have we send a cruiser or two in for cover. Um, we have no particular mine sweeping capability in Europe. We don't really need any because a lot of NATO partners have significant NATO. Um, minesweeping capability. So let's just say the Brits, the French, the Belgians, people send in their minesweepers and we cover those. There's a risk. The interesting thing about the Montreux Convention is it's about belligerence. Well, there's no war. It's a special military operation. So we have tons of sticky legal wickets here about defining what is what. If Turkey agrees to let NATO warships through, maybe the Russians say, well, look, I want to send my all my ships stuck in the, off Syria. I want to send them home. I want to review. So there's there's all kinds of other implications. Sal, from a just just trying to game that out. What are the risks? But also, what are the what are the chances that that might actually succeed? That you know, show them down, stare them down, a show of force. Which, by the way, NATO has been NATO from a naval standpoint has had all these demonstrations in, in the. Uh, in the Mediterranean since this began that have been pretty coherent. I mean, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty impressive, including Turkey. Well, I mean, you just had the Benfold do a FONOP pass uh, the Paracel Islands in the South China Sea. And, and I would make the argument the Paracel Islands are not in the main shipping channel. They're 50 miles from the main shipping channel. You know, th that's, that's an effort to show China, listen, we have a presence here. We, we're here, you know, yet we're not doing that in the Black Sea. And, you know, I would raise the issue even a little further, Chris, is, is, you know, you can push through. Let me be clear, too. You don't need a minesweeper. Get an empty bulk ship, run through the Turkish Straits, and a bulk ship can take as many mines as any other vessel in the world. It's just going to get fill up with water and get a little bit lower down. We learned that with the Bridgeton in 1987 when the tanker hit uh, a mine coming out of the Persian Gulf and its Navy escorts got, fell in behind it. So, you know, th there are ways to do it. But the problem you have in the Black Sea right now is we keep talking about NATO in the United States, but we also got to remember that China imports 17% of its grain from Ukraine, that, you know, the Black Sea is of vital importance to them. Fuel oil coming out through out of Kazakhstan is important. This is not a little cul-de-sac where nothing happens. This is a vital shipping lane. And matter of fact, as long as the rail lines are shut across Russia into Europe, we're seeing rail come across from China and to the Black Sea terminus and crossing that way. And so we may see Turkey being leveraged to force an action through this. But let's not forget, too, we have NATO in there. Bulgaria and Romania and Turkey are there right now. And you can transfer vessels to Bulgaria and Romania, put them under their flag and sail them through for their home base. That's, that's in pure compliance with the Montreux 
convention. Uh, the, the issue I would argue right now, the big what if is what happens next? We've seen Ukraine hit Russian oil platforms, which are basically monitoring platforms in the Gulf of Odessa. They've been hitting those jack up rigs that are there. The question is, what happens if the Russians start hitting that fleet of vessels off the Danube? And they've already hit vessels. The problem is they've hit Bangladesh vessels. They've hit Moldavian vessels. They've hit Panama registry vessels. Does those countries come to their Rescue? No, we know that's not going to happen. Uh, but what happens when they start lobbing missiles into those groups or torpedoes or laying mines? How does that escalation happen? My concern is that the US Navy, NATO, and all the allies around the world have generated freedom of the seas. We've never seen this before where the oceans are as open as they are post-World War II. This is Mark Levinson writing in out, out, uh, Outside the Box. We're in a new period of globalization where the world's oceans are open as ever before. But you get people like Lars Jensen, who was on a panel with John, who talk about the greatest threat to ocean shipping today is the U.S. Navy and not the U.S. Navy doing something, but the fact that they're not going to be there and opens up the question about will the world's oceans be free for commerce? And the Black Sea is really a test case for this right now. As this war progresses, and again, everyone you talk to would have said this war will be over in a month or two, yet it's going on, it's grinding, it's the Balkans, it's World War One. It's a meat and, grinder. Yeah. Right. And, and what happens when it starts expanding and they do start lugging, you know, if the Russians hit those ships off the Danube, do the Ukrainians hit the ships coming out of the Kerch Straits and Novorysk uh, going in? And then does the Black Sea turn into, and again, you know, I talked about China. India has a huge influence in this area because of grain coming out of there. Uh, you know, we, we're, we're talking traditional like we usually do, but there are international players that have a play here. And I think creating stability in a region, you know, we did it with piracy off the coast of East Africa. And I got to tell you, piracy was a joke in terms not for the crews involved, but in terms of overall commerce of the world and, and freight, it was minuscule. It was tiny. It really didn't matter until they grabbed Tom Hanks and then the U.S. Navy reacted to it. But, you know, the Black Sea is not that. It is, you know, we're, we're going to see an impact in food supply for a long time. They're still getting weapons out of the ground at Verdun in France from 1917. What's going to happen to grain fields in Ukraine right. after this war is over? John, uh, here's 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 a wild card to sort of close with. Um, so we just Sal so was just talking about the anti-piracy mission. Well, we're not doing we're we're, we're still doing some of that with the with the the uh, combined task force constructs out of Fifth Fleet. The Chinese have kept up now uh, this these escort forces to the Gulf of Aden, a continuing unbroken sequence now well over a decade that has given them a wealth of experience in blue water out of area operations they're still doing it the 41st escort first escort force i think is the one out there now what if let's just say the chinese say you know this is a real problem we want to help the world so we're going to sail into we're going to send our 44th escort force all the way through suez up through the dardanelles up into the into the black sea we'll escort everybody it's the Chinese. Hey, everybody. What happens then? What 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 goes on? What are what are some of the implications with that? I, I think that's an excellent point, and we have to plan out these what ifs. You know, uh, it, how much involved is China in with uh, Russia? Russia is the biggest 
exporter of, of, uh, of energy, these materials, uh, heavy metals and, and precious materials, and the, you know, the grain, the Russian, the Ukraine, well, China's the biggest importer of these things. But what people have to realize, there's this thing in their head that this stuff is moved by planes, it's moved by trains. Ships are 10 times more efficient than trucks, which are 10 times more efficient than planes, which are 10 times more efficient than helicopters. We're missing the basic physics of this, and we're missing those guys with the boots on the ground. And it goes all the way to the LCS and the Zumwalt. You know, what are the guys on the deck plate? What are the officers who are manning this equipment saying about this future equipment? What are the merchant mariners now saying of, hey, I'm passing. I, we get the calls all the time. I, a merchant ship is passing a Russian ship in the uh, eastern Mediterranean. Is he in danger? Is he not in danger? And he doesn't even know who to call. So again, it comes back to maritime strategy. There's a little bit. Navy League with Admiral Fogo is working on some merchant marine strategy in there. General Lyons in the White House. But there's no coordination. Uh, Simsek Jimmy uh, Drennan said we need a maritime secretary. I don't know if that's the solution or not. But there's not a single merchant ship captain in the Pentagon. There's not a single merchant ship. That, I think there's one at the Navy War College. Call Sal. Send him to the Navy War College for a month uh -huh. and let's plan this out. Bring him into uh, net assessment in the Pentagon. You can't. We got to stop making plans with with by ourselves. I feel whoever's making a lot of these plans, whether it be force reduction or you know replacing working ships with the super Zumwalt ship. Whoever's making these plans does not have that on-deck expertise. We need merchant mariners. We need surface warfare. We don't need the, the Army making these decisions for us. We need the guys with the technical boots-on-the-ground knowledge. And I, I just add something to that. I go back to something Savelle said. You know, we have bifurcated our maritime. The commercial and military are, are split. It's been that way since the end of the Second World War. And in many cases, both sides don't pay attention to the other side. And whereas if you look at China, Japan, Korea, that's not the case. You know, when you launch the newest Japanese aircraft carrier it is being built in a shipyard alongside the newest container ships for Taiwan, you know, in a Chinese shipyard oh, coming out. They have right. And they've integrated in their uh, merchant marine into it. They have embraced Mahan in a way that we don't. And in many ways, what you're seeing is the application of sea power. I go back to this issue and I say it many times that we have a U.S. Navy that's number one in the world and a merchant marine that's 21st in the world. China is number two in the world in both Navy and the merchant marine. Who's a better proponent of sea power? And oh, by the way, the biggest ship stuck in Odessa right now is a Hong Kong flagged Costco Chinese container ship that needs to get out at some point. And, you know, you can't tell me that China wouldn't be interested in making a show of force to go in there and, and relieve one of their vessels coming out. All right. Well, folks, that's all the time we have today, but this has been just a fantastic uh, discussion. Both of you have just great insight into this issue, and I hope we both have both of you on again. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Sal Marcagliano. He's hosted the video blog, What's Going On With Shipping, and John Conrad, the founder of the G Captain website. Excellent stuff. Highly recommended. Um, Sal and John, thank you very much for being here. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You guys do an amazing job, and uh, we all appreciate it. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right, it's time for Squawk Box. And Mr. Cervello has some reactions to the punishments handed out for the Bonham Richard fiasco. 
Today's action by Secretary of the Navy, Carlos del Toro, and the response by then Surface Forces Commander, Vice Admiral Rich Brown, are the latest indicators that something is really wrong with the Navy. The ham-fisted, after-the-fact attempt to hold someone, anyone, accountable to satisfy calls for greater accountability from lawmakers is sad. Unlike Admiral Paparo's actions, which focused on accountability for the causal factors of the fire, the SECNAV's decision to try and pin this on Vice Admiral Brown is unhelpful. In the letter of censure to Brown, SECNAV writes that Brown, quote, failed to oversee ship's fire safety readiness and maintenance availabilities where risk of fire is great. Brown also failed to set a culture permitting commanding officers faced with significant pressure to meet time and schedule milestones while in an availability to raise concerns or properly weigh safety, including fire safety against maintenance milestones. In the second to last paragraph, SECNAV tells Brown, you failed to identify and mitigate against the lack of oversight that contributed to the loss of the ship. Accordingly, you are hereby censured for failing to effectively ensure appropriate levels of training and readiness in units under your command. After reading the investigation and related lawyer correspondence, we know that Vice Admiral Brown was never interviewed by investigators or by Secretary Del Toro. We also know that the command and control relationship is inaccurately captured in the investigation and that the so-called findings of fact are mostly opinion as they relate to Brown and the Surf Force staff. Simply put, the letter of censure sends the wrong message to the fleet. It doesn't help prevent a future incident from occurring. It again demonstrates to the public how hosed up the Navy's system of accountability really is. That said, my disappointment this afternoon doesn't stop with the Secretary of the Navy. Vice Admiral Brown's statement to USNI News in response to the letter of censure was equally unhelpful and embarrassing to him and the Navy writ large. Brown told USNI, I am extremely disappointed that the Navy, to which I dedicated and devoted 35 years of service, has abandoned me for political expediency. Every officer, commander, and leader should now be on notice. Look, complaining about political expediency is not what I would expect from a veteran three-star who was at the helm of the community's type command when Bonham Richard burned out of control for nearly a week. Before worrying about the service's political tendencies, it seems to me that every officer, commander, leader should take notice of lessons learned of the fire investigation, the general material condition of today's ships, and perhaps the overall state of our Navy. Oh, by the way, political expediency is nothing new and was something Vice Admiral Brown remained silent about as the Deputy Chief of Naval Personnel and as the Navy's lead surface warfare officer. As our discussion segment drove home, the maritime environment is challenging and dangerous. The sooner Navy leadership can move beyond political expediency and get their eyes on the ball, the sooner we begin to regain ground on adversaries like Russia and China. Amen, Chris, and thanks. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Hey.